go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis. And you go to your church, and with any luck, you might win the annual raffle. But if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. There's a stereotype that surgeons have egos. I kind of absorbed that, but having met a lot of surgeons who seemed very nice, I thought this was maybe more of a handy Hollywood narrative device than reality. That was until I read a new analysis paper published on bmj.com this week, excising the surgeon ego. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and to talk about that, I'm joined by three surgeons and an organisational psychologist. First, we've got Christopher Meyer, who's assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University and is our psychologist. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. We also have Amir Gaffari, associate professor at the University of Michigan. Hi, Amir. Hello. Thank you. We have Yimung Lu Myers, who's a resident surgeon at the University of Maryland. Hi, thanks for having me. And we also have Greta McLachlan, who's taking a year out of being a surgical registrar to work at the BMJ. Thanks for coming in, Greta. Hi, you're welcome. So, as I said, I thought that um, that kind of monstrously egotistical surgeon um, was an exaggeration. Uh, but then I read the case study that you put at the beginning of your article. Now, in that uh, transplant surgeon branded his initials onto a patient's new liver. Um, I find that shocking, which is uh, something that doesn't happen. I've been here at the BMJ for a while now. I thought I was kind of inured to these things, but you know that was that was shocking. Um, so. Is that ego really a thing in surgery? I think it's definitely a reality. And and given that clip that you played, we've actually watched that before as well. We realize that Hollywood is kind of an extreme representation because it, it um, makes things very dramatic. But the real life ego problem is more subtle. But it's definitely something that I've experienced in my training, even in medical school, as well as residency. Did you have any example that you could you could share? When I was a medical student, I think walking into the operating room had always been slightly intimidating. It's got its own very rigid culture and a hierarchical structure. And I remember watching attending surgeons kind of um, run the ro- run the room, and their. Um, their assistants and as well as other ancillary staff in the operating room kind of living in a state of fear in terms of not being able to raise concerns or if they see something that's not done right they're more fearful of raising their comment rather than working in a collaborative environment now this is not the norm this is one or two example that i've seen but it's certainly enough to um, affect the selection of medical students just recently i talked with a family member of mine who's a medical student currently, and she excelled at sewing and suturing and surgical techniques, but came home and told me that, you know, the the culture of surgery really deterred her from choosing that specialty. And this is affecting people's career choices. So I think it certainly is important to talk about. 
And I think we should delve into the culture um, and, you know, we, we, we can get that into that um, in more detail in a little bit. Uh, Amir, do you have uh, a similar experience of, of surgery? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, the, the, the type of behavior um, that's obviously dramatized in, in Hollywood and that, you know, we allude to, we give a couple case examples, is by far and away the exception rather than the rule. Um, and I would really want to emphasize that, that the, the vast majority of surgeons are exactly what you described, kind people um, who want to take good care of their patients um, and have uh, you know, minimal ego-driven behavior. Uh, what I will also say, though, is that um, given the environment within which surgeons practice, um, a very high-risk, um, high-stakes, high-stress environment, you can imagine that um, uh, even uh, the best of surgeons may uh, have moments uh, where they uh, uh, exhibit ego-driven behavior uh, that borders um, on um, inappropriate. Um, but, but that being said, um, you know, what Yamong is describing is, uh, uh, was a reality, uh, in, in a lot of operating rooms, um, around the country and, um, and unfortunately still is a reality in some operating rooms. However, the advent of, of checklists and, um, team training and things of that sort has begun to take some hold over some hospitals and in operating rooms and has contributed to um, an improvement of the culture within the operating room where um, while the surgeon, um, you know, by proxy, you know, has the patient's life in their hands to some degree, um, it is absolutely a team sport. And we ha have begun to recognize and acknowledge verbally um, the importance of everybody in the operating room from the anesthesiologists to the nurses to the scrub techs, um, everyone who uh, participates in the care of a surgical patient truly is vital in the continuum of care to optimize the outcomes for all of our patients. And so um, there, the, the culture is swinging. And I would, I would just, again, emphasize that what we describe um, uh, is, is, is real, um, but fortunately in, the, in a vast minority of patients, or excuse me, of uh, providers. Now you mentioned that the um, the surgical checklist, and, and when that came out, I remember speaking to Atul Gawande about it and saying, "You've got a bit in there which says introduce yourself to each other." And I was just thinking, from someone who has never spent time in a, a theatre, that just seems like a fairly normal thing to do. Um, Greta, do you like? You know that that element of it uh, of the the checklist. Do you have you noticed that, and and how does that sort of feed into the ego? Thing? I think from my point of view, I've been training in surgery now for five years. I've been a doctor for coming up eight. So actually, with the shift pattern nature that you get in medicine, you might be working with a different team. You might be on call at the weekend or somebody's called in sick and you've got a doctor who doesn't know the trust or uh, is working with a team that they've not worked with before. So I think what the who actually does is get everyone to stop at the start of the day for the first operation and say, hi everyone, I'm your surgeon. Hi, I'm your ODP. I'm the runner for the list. And it, I think it does break down 
that barrier, maybe not fully effectively, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, you were mentioning before that there's maybe some more old school surgeons that uh, are less on board with the, uh, the ethos of that. Yeah, I think the registrars that were training me when I was an SHO, there was definitely the emphasis of you're the surgeon in charge, you will be one day performing the operation so it it's on your head to do the the who or someone that you trust to do that i think there is probably in the older generation some resistance to it still uh, i think those are few and far between um like i say i would say it, it's done i can't think of anywhere i've not seen it done sure so i mean of of that together um it's a high stress, complicated environment, or whether egos uh, in play, and then there's been this thing uh, that's coming in and, and perhaps is beginning to change, or at least challenge some of that culture. Um, Christopher, as an organisational psychologist, this must have been really fascinating for you to <laughs> to look at. It absolutely is, and you know I'll echo all of the prior points that this is certainly not universal, but there's enough of this systematic pattern of behavior that it does start to shape the norms of action and interaction. And as you note, you know, a simple task like introducing yourself can get lost by the wayside in the stress and the chaos of, you know, a hectic OR day. But we know from research in the organizational sciences and in psychology, the importance of that feeling of trust and psychological safety if individuals are going to speak up and share important bits of information. And we know anecdotally from talking to folks working in the OR that every once in a while they may encounter something where they really wanna ask someone a question or they really wanna speak up about something but they can't even remember the name of the person that they need to talk to. And so they keep it to themselves, potentially to the detriment of our ability to care for patients. And so as someone who studies organizations and knowledge sharing and systems, it was both fascinating, um, a little bit disconcerting, but also, you know, a real, I think, opportunity to bring some of the insights that we have from organizational sciences. And we certainly don't have all the answers, but we've been thinking about these kinds of questions for a long time and try to say, what of these pieces might we bring to the surgical professionals, both the surgeons as well as everyone else in the OR, who know this setting, know the hard work that's being done there, and can we find some links and ways to bring together these two domains of We've study? We've talked a little bit about culture here, and I think if we go back to that original story about the transplant surgeon, um, I think that was one of the most sort of disturbing bits for me, yeah. was that uh, during that during that incident, um, a nurse spotted what had happened. Um, presumably there are other people in the theatre who, who must have been aware as well. Um, but, well, didn't feel able or for whatever reason didn't um, challenge or, or stop the procedure or, or, or talk to anyone else about it uh, at the time. So that kind of culture that had built up in medicine um, for a long time seemed to be there almost to... Uh, to prop up or, or at least allow um, this kind of behavior to continue. So I would say observing from the outside, you know, exactly the stereotype that we're talking about here feeds this a little bit in that, you know, we, we have this cycle of 
working in a very highly stressful environment, seeing you know both tremendously successful outcomes, but perhaps some unsuccessful outcomes as well, experiencing the the consequence and the negative emotion associated with that, you know, perhaps in in extreme cases, lashing out or engaging in counterproductive or disruptive behavior in some ways as a coping mechanism, which feeds this stereotype, which then is used in a way almost to excuse that kind of behavior of, well, surgery is exceptionally stressful and, you know, it's a high stakes environment. So we let people slide a little bit on their attitude or on their behavior because they must be under a tremendous amount of stress and they get really great outcomes. So the ends justify the means in a way. And it becomes a little bit of a slippery slope because we see in other settings where there is a high degree of stress or a high degree of consequence for individuals' performance, those same kinds of pressures, but perhaps not the same allowance for these different kinds of behavior, both in the extreme cases, as in cauterizing your initials, but also in the the much more subtle forms that Yamang and Amir referred to earlier that you know, just small interactions or small difficulties that can change the way that people act and interact in the operating room. Mm. And Yimung, when at the beginning you mentioned um, first starting uh, going into into an operating theatre, can you sort of describe a little bit? Can you sketch out what um, what the culture and the dynamics that are that are going on there, and maybe how it's changed over over time as well? Yes, of course. So. I think I want to bring up one thing Chris has said earlier that um, came to mind when you mentioned why there isn't a sense of um, advocacy on behalf of the patient for those nurses who are witnessing this atrocious act being carried out is a sense of psychological safety. And, and I think that that has changed a lot, but I think that partially explains that culture. Walking into an operating room is a scary feeling for the first time as a medical student in that you can already sense that, like previously mentioned, it's a high stress, high stake um, environment and everyone seems to have their roles. And even as a first timer, you can tell that there is a pretty clear hierarchy uh, to be respected. So um, it's not uncommon for a medical student to be berated the first time that they join an operating room for contaminating a sterile field or not knowing where to stand, when to speak up, when to ask questions. There are all these subtle rules that are not really written, um, but needs to be respected. Now, this is, I guess I went through training probably six or seven years ago now. So things have changed and have gotten better and they really vary by specialty and by operating room as well. And like um, Amir had mentioned earlier, these are not the common theme among all operating rooms. But um, so I think that that sense, that sense of um, hierarchy and that sense of not having the psychological safety to speak up really resulted in what had happened in this case. We've talked a lot in here about behaviors. um, And I think it's worth kind of delving into that a little bit more deeply. Um, In your paper, you kind of group them uh, under narcissism. Um, I suppose, Chris or or Emir, what kind of behaviours are we actually talking about here? What kind of identifiable um, traits uh, uh, have you you pulled out in the the paper? 
So in part, one of the challenges that we experienced with addressing these issues is that they go under a variety of different topics and headings. Most broadly, on the behavioral side, we see lots of research about the consequences of disruptive behavior. And we've seen some very good work looking at potential antecedents to this disruptive behavior, which include not only the stress of the operating environment or of the task itself, but also of various personality characteristics. And this is where, you know, I came in as the organizational psychologist saying, well, there's narcissism going on here. And, you know, both my my co-authors and others we presented it to said, whoa, 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 narcissism, that's a big word. You know, that's that's a, you know, um, we have to be careful about about suggesting that. So I will say to start off with, when we think about narcissism looking in the organization sciences, and this is something that's been studied for 30, 40 years among managers, among CEOs, for instance, there's a very robust research literature around narcissism. We don't mean a clinical deficiency. What we mean is the the level of narcissism, which all of us carry around to a certain extent, but which might vary in degrees among different individuals that is then manifest in different attitudes that we might see. So whether that be dominance or aggression or arrogance, um, those are the kinds of attitudes that can result from that narcissistic uh, characteristic. But again, it's something that we all possess to varying degrees. Hmm. I, I also quite was thinking about this uh, before, and I quite like the fact that we now have three surgeons sitting down talking about our egos as sort of <laughs> on, on the whole. We do all have a narcissistic side, and I, I agree it's, it's something that we all have, but possibly because of the nature of the job, surgeons tend to be slightly more narcissistic because you have to believe in yourself that you can save this patient's life or like we said get through a six-hour operation where you may not have had some food at the start of it so you've got to have that mental durability to push through and perhaps uh, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there um <clears throat> again in, and I'll echo what Chris just said a moment ago that um that what, what this term is a very narcissism is, has a very it's a very loaded word that that espouses feelings and impressions and uh it, you know it just it, it's it's a difficult term to use to describe anybody um without offending them now um like chris very nicely said and greta uh, um, as well that that these are some elements that are actually needed and you probably want in um a surgeon who is about to undertake a a very uh, a potentially life-saving, um, complex, um, highly technical operation. Now, the problem comes in when they are applying some of these attitudes toward the operation onto others. And that's where um, we, we, we slip into the, the idea of disruptive behavior. Um, you want your surgeon to be arrogant to some degree in their mind that I am, I am the one who, I am one, the person who can fix this. I am the person who can help this patient. Now, again, the word arrogant is a very loaded term, but you want them to have that confidence and that, that belief that they can do this. You may want in your surgeon uh, someone who is aggressive about trying to treat certain pathologies, that they will tackle something that many others may not. Now, those are 
good qualities, um, but again, must be tempered. You don't want a surgeon who has the arrogance to believe that when they walk into the operating room, that everybody must stop, pay respects to the person walking through. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where it becomes pathology and disruptive. Um, so, uh, so, so this is a fine line to walk, and you can imagine when you were describing somebody who's been on their feet for eight hours, has you know not eaten, has you know has had some very stressful moments in an operation, where that can it's very easy to slip off of that line. And what we are seeing now, as opposed to 15, 20 years ago, is surgeons and and all healthcare professionals are are able to balance that a lot better. And are able to to walk that fine line um, uh, much more easily because of some of the you know positive uh, advancements and positive progress that we've seen um, in the surgical world as well as uh, healthcare in general. So um, you know, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I think it's 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 definitely a uh, there's a tension there as to uh, you know what's what's the right balance of these uh, attitudes and behaviors. If I could add, I think you know it really. As Amir is saying, it's there has been more nuance added over time to this. I think we used to say aggression is good, you know, because you want somebody who can be aggressive in their treatment. So we just allow them to be aggressive in all of their interactions with every other person and with every patient and with every clinical problem that they come across. I think we're seeing more nuance now to recognize and to try to instill among healthcare professionals that yes, let's be aggressive in our care and our treatment of a particular problem in front of us. But when we turn and speak to one another, we need to be able to check that and make sure that that aggression isn't coming out in our interactions with one another, because we have data now that that can create a challenge or a problem that ultimately has a negative impact on patient care and maybe undoing all of the benefit that our aggressive treatment was doing. I think as well to echo what you've said there in terms of you want a surgeon who's arrogant, quote unquote, but you don't want someone so arrogant and so delusional and God complex that they see a patient in front of them and only them can save that patient who actually it might be the best thing to for that patient is to have a frank and honest conversation and say, actually, yeah, we probably could get you through this operation, but you're still probably not going to survive long term, perhaps when we didn't have such good end of life care for these types of patients, the arrogant surgeon could come in and try and do an operation that wasn't in the patient's best interest, but was maybe in the, the surgeon's best interest because they got to do the operation. Uh, I think I think it's definitely a, a nuance and a, and a balance to, to strike. Um, I completely agree with that. I think it's interesting you bring that up because in, in my particular experience as a um, trainee and head and neck cancer patients, we have a lot of end stage patients that need these 16 hour long operations to tackle stage four aggressive locally advanced disease that may not extend their life for more than a few months. But I think the weight of that decision, unfortunately, rests on the shoulders of the surgeon. And they do have that sensation, that debate of, I'm, I may be the only person who's able to save this, this patient's life. And that is a really hard decision to make. And that can lead to those behaviors and, and make those decisions difficult. And I think the thing that um, 
that has changed this culture in a more positive direction that Amir has mentioned is realizing that saving a patient's life or taking care of them in the operating room really doesn't completely weigh on the shoulders of the surgeon. It's a team sport. It really matters for everyone on the, to be on the same page. And I think that, you know, realizing these situations are complex, time sensitive, they're high stake procedures, but that's, that shouldn't be used as an excuse for disruptive behavior. That should be used as a motivation for even more cooperative behavior, even more psychological safety and trust. And I think that realizing that the whole team plays a role and not just the surgeon will really help us um, understand these disruptive behaviors. And I think making sure that the, like you said, you know, it, it's not just the surgeon making the decision, but also yeah. that, that the patient is part of that team as well. And I think the patient can sometimes temper the temperament of, of surgeons when you've got the person, like you say, in front of you with stage four cancer. You, you you can't really shout and scream. It's a completely inappropriate thing to do. And patients normally are sort of the first to say, actually, that, that behaviour is completely out of line and put in the complaint and sort of signpost these things because the rest of us get a bit Stockholm syndrome sometimes. So, And I think it's interesting to think too about not just those, those extreme manifestations of shouting and screaming, but um, if we think about when those decisions for treating those patients are being made, so if you have a, a tumor review board or, or some sort of review mechanism for making decisions on these cases, if we really think hard about it, are we seeing decisions that are made purely in the best interest of the patient, or do we see a little bit of surgeon preference and perhaps even narcissism coming in? Are we making decisions by saying, okay, this is absolutely just purely what is the right decision for this patient? Or, you know, I really wanted to do one of these kinds of cases. I really think I can do it. Others may be needling you or, or poking to say, you know, well, are you too scared to do it? Can you step up and do a big case like that? You know, we we see those kinds of discussions happening when these decisions are being made. And that does suggest that there's, as you say, an aspect of the surgeon preference or perhaps even the surgeon ego being exerted on these, these patient care decisions. And that might be something that we want to think about or look into a bit. So interesting that you say that because over here in the UK, I, I think it's slightly different with you guys in the States, but we have multidisciplinary team meetings for all our patients who have cancer no matter which specialty it falls under and that will normally include at least one surgeon even if it's not a, a, a surgical um, specialty that they've come in under uh, they will have the normally a, a medical equivalent so say it's colorectal you might have a gastroenterologist that will uh, have a discussion sometimes you will have the pathologist the radiologist a uh, couple of care, uh, nurse specialists, you have the MDT coordinator, as well as having the oncologist there, and you will make a group decision based on the presentation of the patient, what the patient is like in terms of their fitness level, uh, what you think the patient wants as well, because you've probably started to broach some of these conversations, and you make a collaborative decision, and I think from that point of view that it can then be very difficult to sway 
an MDT decision because actually you've got four of your colleagues sat there and if you're suddenly saying you want to do something completely out of the ordinary, people look at you a bit like, actually, mate, that's that's not the right thing that we should be doing for this patient. So I think you've, you've almost got that tempering by having these MDTs of making sure everyone's relatively doing the same sort of thing. Mm. MDT being multidisciplinary team, team, sorry. Yeah. Um, so that's a an interesting discussion. I think we could go on about that for a while. <laughs> hours <laughs> more, hours uh, more. Yeah, but I want to sort of move on to um, a thing that uh, Greta pointed out to me. Um, you were talking about Henry Marsh, Marsh. who is a, uh, a British neurosurgeon, and he's written a book that's... Mm-hmm. Um, very good, uh, called Do No Harm, about his kind of reminiscences. Yeah, it's sort of memoirs. He's retired now. He was at uh, St. George's for St. George's in South London for quite a few years, um, retired and has written a very wonderful memoir. And he talks about some of the cases that he sees, how training has changed over the last uh, 40 plus years. And there's a there's a part in it where, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I haven't got it in front of me, unfortunately, where he says, you know, you're not allowed to have big tantrums anymore in theatre. And he, he's, he says sort of quite rightly, however, there's part of him that misses being allowed that because it was quite a good de-stress for you when you're in a, uh, a, a bad situation in, during the theatre or something hasn't gone quite right, to be able to have a bit of a, a rant and a, a rave at people and then collect yourself and come back to it. So I think there's an element of the, the, the ranting of surgeons being a stress relief. Um, and I think that's actually what Dr. You said Duncan, Dr. Bram, Bram Hall said in... in uh, not in chambers. When he was in, in court, um, that it was a stress relief for him to write initials in in people's liver. Um, Do you guys think that there's an element of that in there? So I think we hear that that used quite a bit, and you know, I'm happy to be the one coming from outside of surgery to say that you know um, there are more and less productive outlets for stress. Um, so I think we have to really ask ourselves the question is, are we using that as an excuse for bad and disruptive behaviors? Because we, we don't tend to see that in other high stress environments to the, to the same degree, at least in these kind of stereotypical patterns. And I think we have to ask, you know, is that, is ranting and raving at the team, a productive outlet for stress versus, um, I have a colleague who recently took up the hobby of axe throwing and he finds it very therapeutic. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll highlight work done by um, Amir and his colleagues on this concept of failure to rescue. So we see that a lot of the difference in the quality of care and our ability to, to treat patients comes not from the actual performance of the particular surgeon in the operating room in terms of, you know, lowering their complication rate. But he and his colleagues have found that a lot of the variation in mortality that we see across hospitals is due to these rescuing behaviors. So once a complication has occurred, how do we work together as a team to catch it early, to coordinate and collaborate in ways that allow us to address it? And Amir, I'm I'm speaking out of turn because I'm highlighting your work, but I just think that that's so relevant here because if you're ranting and raving, are you 
relieving stress in the moment and perhaps maybe helping you in the performance of surgery at the cost of then creating an environment where later on when the patient's in ICU or in recovery and they something starts going wrong, the team feels less willing to speak up to you because you've just ranted and raved at them. No, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, uh, uh, Chris. I, I don't, you, you summarized that work very beautifully. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, all of this, uh, again, Chris, equally with an outsider's eye on this, makes me wonder about the kind of chicken and the egg of it. You know, the way that surgeries performed, long eight-hour operations, you know, that high stress, uh, everything that's going on. Is that come about because of the kind of people with egos um, who've set up surgery to, to act that way and then recruited new surgeons in who are following that that mode? Or, or is there something inherent to just that kind of medicine um, that was always going to be that way. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. It's a, you know, how culturally derived, as opposed to medically derived, do you think are, are some of those kind of surgical uh, established norms are? I, th I think you can... I wonder if perhaps 40, 50 years ago when you did surgery and you probably had much higher mortality rates because that was the nature of the beast. You almost had to be quite resilient, quite hardy, probably quite arrogant, quite narcissistic to be able to, to have that battering of people that you've operated on dying. And with that direct one-to-one. -one, with that one-to-one -one almost. You, something you've, you did. you've done. And yeah. you, you almost have to have that complete faith in yourself that it won't happen again next time to, to be able to, to improve your field. Yeah, how about you guys? What do you think about that sort of chicken and the egg? How has this come about? Is it surgeons informing the work or, or the work kind of moulding surgeons? I, I think, I, from my perspective, that's a tough question to answer. I think, um, you know, uh, again, historically, um, I would say some of these behaviours were exhibited by all types of, of physicians and surgeons. So you, know, you you had um, you had internists who may you know may be uh, the world's expert on you know pick a pathology and um, may have exhibited some of these same behaviors. Um, sure. I think that uh, clearly that that over time um, it's become less acceptable. Now in surgery, it definitely ha is much more acute in the sense that you know, uh, how you handle a stressful situation where, you know, there is a, you know, pulsatile bleeding vessel in your face. Um, and, you know, how you respond to that is really going to uh, release your, uh, you know, uh, release your, your kind of your habits, so to speak, and not allow you to um, self-edit, so to speak. Um, uh, and so that may have um, historically led to um, uh, attracting people who thought that was exciting, who thought that was empowering, who thought that was interesting. Um, and I, I think we, we mentioned this in the paper that I think over the years, we've definitely lost some pretty remarkable minds who may have otherwise contributed heavily to the surgical uh, world 
because they, they didn't find that interesting or exciting, that adrenaline rush um, uh, invigorating. And um, also, you know, realize that some of the bad that comes with that, that they, that they nece- didn't necessarily want to be a part of that. Um, that yeah, I mean, and, and role modeling is key, right? I mean, you know, we, we all chose to become surgeons um, and, and I don't mean to speak for the others, but to some degree, because we saw someone who was amazing and we wanted to be like them. And so the more positive role modeling that we can uh, exhibit and, uh, for our uh, students, um, our, reg- our residents, then the, the, the quicker we're going to see this cultural shift take form. And I absolutely believe it has already begun. And one of the main purposes of us writing this paper was to draw attention to the vast amount of literature that backs up the societal and cultural changes that we are beginning to see with data. That this is not just um, a phenomenon of, you know, it's, it just, it's, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, it, it is the right thing to do, but there's also a vast amount of data that supports it uh, as as the right thing to do. It doesn't just make you feel good. It actually helps patients. It helps teams. It helps physician well-being. Um, there are many benefits to improving the culture of surgery. And so that was one of the main reasons to, to highlight uh, uh, what we did in this paper. Yeah, definitely. And people should go and have a look at the paper. Um, I'll put a link in the the podcast text, and you can see all of the the, the data and the research that you you're talking about there. Um, Yimong, you were you were going to come in with a point. Oh, I was going to say similar things that role modeling is so important because it creates a selection process. People who have similar personalities or um, coping mechanism or or behaviors tend to select to be among those that are similar. And, and I think to tackle these disruptive behaviors, we need to go from two fronts. One is to changing the current climate of, of um, disruptive behaviors operated by surgeons that are already working. And then the second half is the trainees because it's so much easier to train someone right the first time than to change that later on. And I think there are efforts going towards that. The um, Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh actually has been working on the non-technical skills for surgeons training. It's a handbook and a series of training materials that they use to make sure that surgeons, in addition to being trained medical knowledge and, and technical skills, that they have a good understanding of interpersonal skills and situational awareness, how to make decisions, how to make how to have good communication, teamwork with your colleagues, and how to set a good leadership role. And I think the American College of Graduate Medical Education, ACGME, actually for um, American residents um, require interpersonal skill um, and teamwork as one of the core competencies that all residents need to acquire prior to graduation. Now, figuring out the specific curriculum of how to teach that and how to monitor that and how to assess that is a different story. But I think this is another example that goes towards that the positive change that we're seeing, um, at least on the training end too. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree with that in terms of the training that we get in in the UK. We, we, we have lots on, well, maybe not lots, but there's definitely the emphasis on being a team member, team working, leadership. What is good leadership? How can we be better leaders? Um, 
an understanding that even though uh, we may be the the leader in the theatre group, we need to be able to allow people to speak up and actually say, hang on, I think I think that's the wrong leg or I don't think that's the right bit that you should be cutting. Um, but you can only do that by having, like you say, the cultural changes, which I think are almost there. We're, we're, we're close. Uh, we're so much better than we were. Um, and I think, like you guys have said, to, to re-emphasise the fact that these, the arrogant, inverted comma, surgeon the, the the bad surgeon are a small percentage of what goes on the all all the surgeons that i've ever worked with barring a very small percentage are all wonderful inspiring i'd happily let them treat my mum let them treat my dad um let them treat myself um it it is small percentages there's there's still stuff to be done because we can always be better um I've lost my point. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'll add it around that. Um, so, Yumong, uh, thank you. You kind of segued into uh, into the ending bit for me there. So, um, save me having to move us on to, to what next. Um, I suppose uh, maybe the last point I, I would like to, to pick up on, and, and I don't know, Chris, if you're the right person or who else is, um, so you've talked about some things that are happening within surgery there that uh, that are useful and, and are, are good cultural changes. Um, you know, outside surgery, or Chris, maybe um, are there good examples of of how this kind of transformation has maybe happened elsewhere? I don't know, in the army or or industry or, or wherever it happens to be um, that surgeons could learn from. Absolutely, I think that. You know the the points that are being highlighted, and and Greta, you raised the point of you know is this the right leg to amputate? Are really are, they're starting to become more nuanced conversations around what are the different skill sets that are required to be an effective surgeon and an effective leader in the hospital setting? Because I think for a long time we've lumped all of these things together under the heading of clinical or or medical skills. And I, I pose this question when I teach groups of physicians, um, I actually give the example of a wrong leg amputation. And I will frequently ask, you know, how many agree that this is a medical error? And of course, all the hands go up. And I ask, you know, what's clinically wrong with this wrong leg amputation? You know, and if it's not infected, if it's you know executed nicely, I would argue that there's actually nothing clinically wrong, but there's a lot that is wrong from an organizational or a management perspective. And expanding our definition of leadership and of the skill set that we need to have as surgeons or anyone in the health professions to include those abilities to manage and lead effectively is really important. And I think we're starting to see more of that emphasis in training and in the requirements that are being brought by these national and international governing bodies. And it's something that other organizations and other industries have wrestled with for quite a while. And it's something where, you know, for instance, I teach our masters of business administration students and they are there to study purely these issues of how do you coordinate teams and coordinate the work that multiple people are doing? How do you think about operational flows in terms of how information is handed off, perhaps information that could result in the right leg being marked for amputation rather than the wrong one? 
And so I think as we can find ways to bring more of those training opportunities and more of that skill set into medicine, we will improve the quality that we can provide. Someone recently wrote, um, I believe it was in the Harvard Business Review, and I just remember this line that, you know, medicine is one of the few professions where everyone will have to be a leader. In a traditional organization or in the military or wherever you might look, not everyone will be appointed to a capital L leadership position. But as soon as you graduate from medical school in the US, and I know the UK system is a bit different, you are put in charge of the care of patients and the coordination of a team of other health professionals. And there's no getting away from it. There's no option where you just get to work by yourself and never have to interact with other people to coordinate care. And so these skills and the training of these skills is absolutely essential. You've been listening to Christopher Myers, Yimong Lu Myers and Amir Gaferi talk about the analysis. Excising the surgeon ego to accelerate progress in the culture of surgery. Christopher, Yimong, Amir and Greta, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us today. It's our pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, if you enjoyed that, have a look on bmj.com slash podcasts. There you will find our fullback catalogue, as well as details on how to subscribe uh, if you haven't done so yet. That's it for this episode. We'll be back soon with some medical advice about glycemic control in diabetes and another one of our EBM roundups. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. Can I tell my joke? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chris, Yemen, Emir, uh, what's the difference between God and a surgeon? What? <laughs> God, God doesn't think he's a surgeon. <laughs>